Well, good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. As you make your way back to your seat, go ahead and, uh, and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. Thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you uh, for the salvation that you have provided for us through your Son, Jesus, that he has accomplished for us on the cross, and your Holy Spirit that has applied that salvation, that has indwelt us, transformed us, regenerated us, and renewed us, and has empowered us, and is also now illuminating your truth to us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we get to your word, help us to understand it. Um, Lord, open up our ears, our eyes, our hearts, our minds. Lord, help us to learn, help us to behold you. As we look at Paul's instruction to Timothy of enduring in the gospel, Lord, can you help us to learn and can you help us to endure in the gospel and hold fast to your teachings and believing your word and not being influenced by the world. So come, Lord, speak to us, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we get to our passage um, in chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be in verse 1. We're going to try to uh, tackle the whole chapter. Um, it's, it's helpful for us to kind of remind ourselves of what's going on. So Paul um, is writing this deeply personal letter to his spiritual son, Timothy. Uh, more than likely at this time, Timothy is pastoring the church in Ephesus, and Paul finds himself in jail, and he is waiting for execution. And so this is probably the last time he's writing to Timothy. And so out of all the final instructions that he decides to give Timothy, he decides that the best instruction he can possibly give his spiritual son is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, so far in this letter, he's encouraged Timothy, like, Timothy, I need you to guard the gospel. Do not be ashamed of the gospel, but rather guard it. I need you to remember to suffer for the gospel. And so today in our text, he's going to encourage Timothy to hold fast and to endure in the gospel. And the way Timothy needs to endure in the gospel, as we're going to see in the passage, is to avoid ungodly examples and to follow godly examples and to continue to learn, continue to believe the sacred scripture that God has given us. So let's look at our text in verse 1 as we now see this part where he says, avoid ungodly examples. And verse 1 says this, but know this, Hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power." Avoid these people. So, so let's just unpack this passage before we move on here. So Paul begins by, before he instructs Timothy, he begins by reminding Timothy 
that hard days are coming in these last days. Now, normally when we read this phrase in the last days, we always think about, you know, a couple months or a couple years or a couple days right before the return of Jesus. Because when Jesus comes back, like all hell is going to break loose right before Jesus comes back. So when Paul's talking about last days, it refers to those times. But when you read the phrase last days in scripture, it doesn't, re- it doesn't refer to the immediate days right before Jesus' return, but rather the period that exists between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return. So in other words, when Paul is telling Timothy in these last days, he's not talking about hard times ahead of time that he may or may not experience, but rather he is saying no. The days that you're living in right now are considered the last days. And what are you going to do? You are going to experience hard times. And so if that was true for Timothy, then I think it's safe for us to say that's also true for us. In these last days, we will experience hard times. There will be dangers. There will be storms. There will be stressful times for all Christians. And in it, we must endure in the gospel. We must cling to the grace of God. So what's the reason for these hard times? Well, Paul says the reason for these hard times are are people. If you, if you look at verse 2 all the way uh, through verse 5, he, he basically gives us a list of what's wrong with people and the influence of the devil over them. And now I don't really have time to kind of uh, go by each, every one, but what, when you sometimes see a list in the Bible, sometimes what's helpful to look at the list is to kind of give two major categories and try to put those lists into two major categories. So obviously all those lists are lists of sin, but I think there's two major categories Categories that we see in this list that he gives us of an ungodly example. So if you're taking notes, here's the first category that we can take this list in. First of all, notice it's misdirected loves. Misdirected loves. And the second one is dysfunctional relationships. So what's wrong with these people under the influence of Satan? They have misdirected loves that leads to dysfunctional relationships. Let me, let me show you in the scripture where I come up with this. You don't see I'm just making this up. He says, people will be, they have misdirected loves. In other words, they're supposed to love God, but instead of loving God, what do they love? Look, look at verse 2. They're lovers of self, lovers of money. They're unloving, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So what's wrong with these people? They have misdirected loves. To put these terms in contemporary terms, uh, what's wrong with people? People are narcissistic. They love themselves. People are materialistic. They love stuff way too much. People are hedonists. They love pleasure. And all of these misdirected loves were not only prevalent in Timothy's days, they're also prevalent in our days. Like, like, think about it. Like, every commercial, every marketing scheme gears towards one of those three loves. Love of self, love of stuff, love of pleasure and experience. We're being indoctrinated to love self, love stuff, and love pleasure. That's what we chase after. And, 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 and the second part of the, ca- the second category, if you think about this, The result of misdirected loves. 
So in other words, if everybody loves themselves, they love stuff and love pleasure, what is the result of the relationships? It leads to dysfunctional relationships. In other words, relationships are not going to last if I love myself, if I love stuff, if I love pleasure. In other words, that relationship is only going to work when I benefit from that relationship. But the second I don't benefit from that relationship, what do I do? I cut ties and I move on. Dysfunctional relationships. Look at scripture. People will be disobedient to parents. People will be ungrateful. People will be irreconcilable, slanderous, brutal traitors, reckless, conceited. Misdirected loves, dysfunctional relationships. And if you really think about it, both misdirected loves and dysfunctional relationships ultimately reveal the underlying failure of humanity when it comes to the great commandment. Love God, love people. And what do we do? We love self and we hate others that we can't benefit from. We only love them if we can benefit from them. And so if these sinful practices are not enough, Paul takes it a step further. He's saying not only do these people have misdirected loves, not only do these people have dysfunctional relationships, but, but look at the, the end of, of, of verse, look at verse 5. Holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, these people have also a form of religion. And so who's these people that, that Paul's talking about? Like when we look at the list of misdirected loves and dysfunctional relationships, we normally don't think about people inside the church, but rather we think about people outside the church. Oh, it's the world. Yeah, it's definitely my neighbor. It's definitely my coworker. But when Paul's writing to Timothy, what kind of people is he telling to avoid? Not people outside of the church, but rather people inside the church. In other words, the people inside the church, maybe in Ephesus that he is pastoring, not only do they have misdirected loves, dysfunctional relationships, but they're also religious. Verse 5, they hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Their lives are not pleasing to God. They have this external practices, baby, but they're morally corrupt. Their religion is a show and they're spiritually powerless. Paul says, avoid these people. So avoid ungodly example with misdirected loves, dysfunctional relationships. And if you're taking notes, I think you can guess this one. Empty religion. Empty religion. And I think the Bible is full of examples of religious showmen. Um, and Isaiah, obviously we don't have time to go through every passage, but real quick, two passages. Isaiah 1, verse 14 to 17. Uh, the people of Judah, they, uh, they have these big religious feasts. Prayers, fasting, sacrifices and all of it. And yet they're not doing good. They're not seeking justice. They're correcting. They're not correcting oppression. They're not defending the fatherless, the widow, or the orphan. And at that point, God says to them, yeah, I'm kind of sick of it. Like you're repulsive. Like I want nothing to do with this because you're doing all of these religious activities and yet this religious activity is empty because you have all these injustices on your hands. You have blood on your hands. If you think about Jesus, his entire life, who was Jesus the harshest on? The sinners, the tax collectors, or the Pharisees? The Pharisees, he, he says to them in Matthew 23, verse 28, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and you 
or lawless. So what's empty religion? Is it an absence of doing good things or is religion doing good things? Like, uh, which one is it? Is it both? I think the easiest way to look at empty religion is religion apart from Christ is ultimately dead. And and that's what's happening to these people that Paul is saying to avoid. They, they, They hold to a form of godliness. In other words, they might believe some right things. They might do some good things, but they deny its power. And the reason why it's powerless because it is devoid of Jesus Christ. Where there's no Christ, there's no power. You can go to church. You can have an office at the church. You can live on the property of the church. But if there's no Christ, you are spiritually dead. And Paul tells Timothy, you have to avoid these people. Have nothing to do with them because they lack substance. And then Paul shows us, not only does he say they live corrupt lives and they practice an empty religion, but look at also what they try to do as they try to win people over to their wicked religion. Look at verse 6 here. For among them are those who worm their way into households, deceive gullible women overwhelmed by sins, and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. There are men who are corrupt in mind and worthless in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their foolishness will be clear to all, as was the foolishness of Janus and Jambres. So these people inside the church that have misdirected loves, dysfunctional relationships, have an empty religion. Three things in the passage I want us to notice. Notice their tactics, notice their victims, and notice their mental corruption. Their tactics in verse 6. It says, for among them are those who, what do they do? They, They worm. They worm their way into these households. In other words, they they do not do it out in the open, but behind closed doors in secrecy. Who does that reflect? Satan. And look at their victims. Who's their victims? Look look at verse, second part of verse 6. And deceive who? Gullible women overwhelmed by sin, led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. In other words, they deceive gullible women who are burdened down with sin, who are trying to find answers to deal with their sin. They're always learning but never come to a knowledge of truth because they try to go on the internet and try to find self-help but not look to Christ. And these men see them in desperate need. And what do they do? Hey, you want some secret sauce? I got some secret sauce. You want to fix your life? Now, Now, Paul does not mean that all women are gullible and that all women are victims in all of this. But it is interesting for us to note is in the Garden of Eden, who did Satan come to tempt? What's his tactics? Who's his victim? This is what Satan does. He worms his way into people's household. He deceives women who are looking for answers and not looking to Christ because they're open to hearing anything. And he gives them some answers that are not the solution. 
And Paul says, look at their mental corruption. And, and he gives some examples uh, of their mental corruption as, as false teachers. He gives us two names, Janus and Jambres. I don't know how you pronounce it. I think, uh, hopefully that's it. Maybe not. Uh, now, if you look in the Bible, you're not going to find these people's names, especially in the Old Testament who are opposing Moses. So which means Paul might have used extra biblical sources because those two dudes um, were actually the Egyptian sorcerers. Remember when Moses came to Egypt and said, let my people go? And so Aaron took his staff and threw it down and turned into a snake. And what did the two Egyptian sorcerers do? And by the way, their names were Janus and Jambres, but it was not revealed in Exodus. So somehow, I don't know how Paul came up with those names, but that's what they're named, apparently. They threw their staff down, and it turned into snakes as well. They showed a little bit of power. They showed a little bit of corruption. And Paul says, they are corrupt in mind. They are worthless in regards to the faith. In other words, they lack any understanding. They lack any truth. So in other words, these are men with a little bit of power. They're not useless. They have power. But their power is corrupt. Now, we read this passage, and let's say hypothetically we stopped for today. This is very depressing. You're like, wait, time out here. I thought that church is a place with good people, a safe environment where I can be myself and there's not these creepy people out there in the church. There should be outside of the church, not inside the church. And you want to tell me that they have misdirected loves. In other words, they don't love God. They have dysfunctional relationships with people. In other words, they use and abuse people for their own personal gain. And then they might even wield themselves into my house and feed me lies. And God is allowing this to happen? Remember the, the, the previous passage where, where Paul was, where was talking about false teachers and their, and their teaching spreads like gangrene. It's this flesh-eating disease where your flesh just literally rots and it spreads and it's hard to stop. You're like, well, that's depressing. That means the church is going to die. Christianity is going to fall apart. And yet, notice now twice in chapter 2, he says... Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands bearing this inscription. The Lord knows those who are His. In other words, the church is never going to die. But then notice verse, in verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9. In regards to all this depressing news of all these wicked people inside the church, He says, But what they will not make further progress, for their foolishness will be clear to all, as was the foolishness of Janus and Jambres. In other words, over time, their foolishness will be exposed. Just like Janus and Jambres. Now think about this. Right in the beginning, Pharaoh's thinking, yeah, this God is not as big because my guys can do it. And what happened after one plague, after another, after another? What, what became clear? Yeah, they're no match for God's power. Like, yeah, you have power? Not really. You cannot oppose God. You stand no chance. And it reveals to Pharaoh the foolishness of these sorcerers. And then also the foolishness of Egypt, of, of Pharaoh. And this is Paul's point. Like, as these things are happening inside the church, like, over time, eventually, these fool, these wicked, foolish, deceitful people will be exposed for who they are. 
God will expose them. And God will preserve His truth. And I think it's so true, this old saying, time will, time will tell. And this is why he is instructing Timothy, I want you to endure in the gospel. How do you endure in the gospel? You avoid these ungodly examples that you find yourself in the church. Misdirected loves, dysfunctional relationships, empty religion. And if that was the instruction for Timothy, who is a pastor, how much more should that instruction be for us? You need to endure in the gospel. And the way you endure, endure in the gospel is by avoiding ungodly examples. You're like, well, what if they're in my life group? Well, then maybe you should expose it for what it is. Maybe you should confront a brother or a sister and saying, this is an ungodly example. There's clearly misdirected loves. There's dysfunctional relationships because all you do is make up stories, tell rumors. Nothing is rooted in the truth, and you're never pointing anybody to Christ. You're always pointing them to self. And Paul says, avoid these people because these people are dangerous. Expose them for what they are. So as we avoid ungodly examples, Paul's going to give us a better way to follow, to follow godly example. Look at verse 10. It says this, But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antiochus, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecution I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and impostors will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. So what Paul's telling Timothy is, I want you to remember, to remember the life that I lived, the persecution I endured, the, 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 the teaching that I've taught. So, so here's the first thing of following godly example. Paul tells Timothy, I want you to, to, to remember Paul's life. Paul said to Timothy that he knew well his teaching, his conduct, his purpose. Paul lived his life not in secret, but out in the open. His teaching explained his life, and his life was exemplary of his teaching. He took great aim in his life to finish his ministry, to testify about the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of Christ. Uh, Timothy observed Paul's life, his faithfulness in ministry, his patience, and his love for churches. I'm sure there's times where Timothy is saying, I think you should beat them up, Paul. And Paul says, no, Timothy, let us be compassionate, let us be faithful, because remember how God is long-suffering towards us. He's witnessed Paul's patience, his love for the churches. The many times that Paul was praying for the churches, grieving over the churches, Timothy watched. He watched Paul's amazing endurance as he kept on going despite endless opposition. And now Paul's life is in jail, and he urges Timothy, remember the life that I've lived. That's the kind of life I want you to live. The second one, he, he, he reminds Timothy, if, if you're taking notes, remember my persecution. Now, it's funny that Paul only mentions three areas he was persecuted. 
He was actually persecuted in more areas. But the reason I think he mentions these three areas is because that is Timothy's home ground. Which means, for Timothy, that meant something. The fact that Paul was willing to be persecuted and endure suffering for his own home ground townspeople. That meant a lot to him. And Timothy knew about Paul's brutal, brutal beating, the hostile mob that, that left him dead. And I'm sure this suffering must have had a great impact on his life. And he says, remember and follow this example. And he says, look at how the Lord has delivered me from all of these. Remember the life I've lived. Remember the persecution I endured. And then the last one is this, remember his teaching. Look at, look at verse 12. And look at Paul's teaching about godliness. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what will happen to you? You'll be persecuted. You know, that teaching sells today. You want to make money? You want to draw a crowd? Just tell them that pursuit of godliness is attainable through much suffering and much persecution. Everybody will sign up for that. What is Paul's teaching about godliness? Yeah, you want to pursue godliness? Lots of hardship, lots of suffering, lots of persecution. But notice the godly life in, in Christ Jesus. Not just a moral good life that people might like, not like, but rather a godliness that is rooted in union with Christ Jesus. And he's reminding him, this godly life that you're living must be rooted in Christ Jesus. Without Christ, there's no godliness whatsoever. It is empty religion. Notice again the contrast between an ungodly example and a godly example. The ungodly example, they have a form of godliness. In other words, they do good things, but they deny its power. In other words, it's completely absent of Christ. And Paul says godliness in Christ. That is the only way to truly live a godly life. And the result of that will be persecution. And so we live this life through our union with Christ. We're reminded of our relationship with Him, in Him, through Him, as we're communing with Him, because we've died with Him. We've been buried with Him. We've been raised with Him. We've been seated with Him. He lives in us. And by the power of the risen Christ, we press on in godliness, and we fix our eyes on Him. So you want to endure in the gospel? Avoid ungodly examples. Follow godly examples as they follow Christ, who is the source of their power, and that is Christ's power. And I also think this is how you can determine between godly and ungodly. What are they constantly going back to? What are they faithfully pointing to? Is Christ present or is Christ absent? Is Christ exalted? Is Christ remembered? Is people pointed to Christ or pointed to other things? If you want to endure in the gospel, you need to follow examples that are rooted in Christ, clinging to Christ. And here's the second one, this third one, how to endure in the gospel. He's going to, Paul's going to charge Timothy to, to hold on and to firmly believe the sacred scripture. Uh, look, look at verse 14. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. 
You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you've known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So as Paul tells Timothy, I want you to continue in what you have learned. The sacred scripture that you've learned from childhood, his grandmother taught him, his mother taught him. He's learned from Paul the sacred scripture. And Paul says, I want you to keep learning and keep believing and keep living out the sacred scripture. This idea of believing the sacred scriptures, this idea of being convinced of. Timothy, I want you to continue to learn. I want to continue to believe. I want you to continually be convinced of the truths of the sacred scripture as the word of God. And what's the purpose of the sacred scripture that he needs to hold on to? He needs to learn and to believe. Look at verse 15. The purpose is this. You know that from infancy you've known the sacred scripture, which are able to do what? To give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What's the purpose of scripture? To give you wisdom. Wisdom about what? Salvation. Through whom? Jesus Christ. And you know what's really interesting? Uh, when Paul says the sacred scripture, what, what scripture was he referring to? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. He was pointing to the Old Testament because, again, the New Testament was being written. Paul was writing Scripture as he's telling Timothy to hold on to Scripture. And he says, and what's the purpose of the Old Testament? To give you wisdom for salvation in Christ Jesus. In other words, the purpose of the Old Testament was to provide, to point us to Jesus. Because the entire Old Testament, all of the scripture in the Old Testament points us to the anticipation of Christ. And when Paul went from church to church and he preached scripture, what what, what scripture did he preach? The Old Testament. And he preached the gospel through the Old Testament showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. How David was a topology, a type of Christ, a shadow of what was to come. And he tells Timothy, I want you to hold on to believe this Old Testament that anticipates Christ. It will give you wisdom for salvation that is through faith in Christ Jesus. And what is the nature of this sacred scripture? Look at verse 16. He says, all scripture is inspired by God. Some of your translation says it's breathed out by God. What does that mean? It meant that as the Spirit worked through the biblical writers to pen God's Word entirely and exactly as He intended, just as God spoke the universe into existence, He breathed out His words in Scripture. 
the reason why we as a church believe that Scripture is the Word, the inerrant Word of God, the authoritative Word of God, and the sufficient Word of God is because of what Scripture claims about itself. Like, you cannot say, I believe Scripture, and then not believe the claims on it, or say that, you know, Scripture is full of errors, or there just can't be because of what Scripture claims about itself. Like, it makes very big claims. Like, I'm going to give you two big claims. Peter, this is what Peter says about Scripture. And, and 2 Peter 1, verse 20 to 21. First of all, you should know this. No prophecy or Scripture comes from one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. So how did prophecy come about? Not the will of man. Not from its own interpretation, but from where? Instead... Men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's what the idea means, breathed out. Did men speak? Absolutely. But how did they speak? As a result of God, as the Holy Spirit moving them to speak God's Word. This is Scripture. Second one is the, the emphasis. Jesus emphasizes the divine nature and the authority of Scripture. Matthew 4, 4, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And all Scripture, we just read, all Scripture is what? God breathed, which means it comes from the mouth of God. And what does Jesus say? That's what you must live on. And then he also says uh, in, in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus, the living word, proclaiming the divine authority of the written word. And Paul says this, these sacred scriptures that is God-breathed, that came from God to us, I want you to hold on to it. I want you to continue to learn in them. And I want you to continually be convinced of the truth that it proclaims. And what is the sufficiency of Scripture? Look at the second part of verse 16. Well, we'll just start with verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for what? Or useful for what? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, Training in righteousness so that the man of God may be partially complete. Now, what does it say? May be completely equipped for every good work. It's not scripture and something else. It is completely sufficient to train you up in righteousness so that you can be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible shapes our beliefs, it shapes our lifestyles, it meets our deepest needs, and it transforms us from the inside out. And Paul charges Timothy, I want you to continue learning. I want you to continue trusting. I want you to continue believing the sacred scripture that is pointing to who? That is pointing to Jesus Christ. That is God-breathed. That's completely sufficient for all that we need for godliness and righteousness. And next week we're going to learn where he tells Timothy, proclaim the scripture. What do you, what do you talk about? 
the scripture. Keep proclaiming the scripture. So for us to endure in the gospel, we must avoid ungodly examples, follow godly examples as they follow Christ and do it all by Christ's power. And we must continue to learn, hold fast, and believe the word of God that ultimately points us to Jesus Christ, that gives us wisdom for salvation, that train and equip us for every good work. Okay, we're done. What example are you following? Are you following godly examples? And the next one I want to ask is this. Are you continuing in learning and believing God's word? What Paul told Timothy was very true. doesn't make it more true. But I think what Paul told Timothy is very relevant to us in our lives. Hard times are coming. Uh, we live in an era where they call it the great de-churching, or some people call it the great falling away. Churches are getting smaller and smaller by the year. And you know what I think is a common denominator? A common denominator is a church or a people, not a building or an institutional pastors. As much as we want to blame pastors for everything, which I think we can blame them for quite a lot. Uh, let's just be honest. Like, we, we, we screw up all the time. But I think the reason why people are falling away, why people are falling into false doctrine, being led astray by wicked teachers, is because people are not clinging to the Word of God. Um, this morning, I was reading Amos. What a wonderful reading. Amos chapter 8. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Amos. Amos chapter 8. Verse 11 and 12. And it just really hit me. This was not part of my sermon, but it just really hit me. Um, God tells Amos, he says, Look, the days are coming. This is the declaration of the Lord God. When I will send a, a famine through the land. Now, when we think of famine, what do we think? A shortage of bread, a shortage of food, water, rain. Okay. But this is what it says in verse 11. Not a famine of bread or a thirst of water, but a hearing the words of the Lord. In that day, the beautiful young women, the young men also will faint from thirst. And those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, Dan, or as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall never to rise again. Now, we can easily take that, 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 that prophecy and say, oh, yeah, that was definitely uh, fulfilled in the intertestamental period because for 400 years, God did not speak. And I think that's possibly true. But I also think that prophecy can be even for us today and be fulfilled today. And so here's the thing. We don't lack the amount of Bibles in our homes. We don't lack the amount of access to Bibles we have today. Some of you have 10 Bibles in your home of every single translation, interpretation known to man, sets of commentaries. That's not even, that's ridiculous. You probably don't even have read and opened any of them. And yet there is a famine of hearing God's word 
there's almost like not this desire to hear God's word. And 10 years ago, the siren went off and saying, church, we are biblically illiterate. And you know what's the result of being biblically illiterate? The falling away, the de-churching. So I don't know if this is the spirit prompting my heart, but I want to warn you, church, if you continue down that path of not holding on, continually learning, holding fast, and believing to the truths of Scripture, you will not be able to endure in the gospel. Because what that means is, it's not just a bunch of head knowledge. Pharisees knew Scripture. But that means your life will be devoid of Jesus Christ. Because what does all Scripture point to? How can you follow Jesus if you don't know Jesus? How can you be in awe of Jesus if you don't experience Jesus revealed through, through his word? How can you look to Jesus if you're not reminded of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, that Christ is in all and is all and all the glories of Christ? And so I want to warn you now, for so many years, you might have been a Christian for 10, 20 years, and yet you do not know the story of the Bible. You are biblically illiterate, and you do not know the fundamentals of the faith. And you might have a couple more years where you can cruise like that and be okay, but eventually it's going to catch up onto you. So heed my warning. Do not fall into the trap of the enemy saying, I'll do it Monday. I'll do it later. Get in the Word. Read the Word. Cling to the Word. And look at how the Word points to Christ. And if you struggle in the Word, join a life group. We teach you how to study God's Word. If you don't understand the storyline of the Bible... We teach a class called The Christian Story where we tell you the storyline of the Bible and how every book and every passage points to Jesus Christ. That it's not just a conglomerate of a bunch of little stories, but it's ultimately one big story. It is God's story of redemption through His Son. So please mark my warnings. You cannot continue enduring the gospel if it's devoid of Christ. Look to Christ, cling to Christ as you get into his word, as you learn, as you grow, as you believe.